I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility podcast. Safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. That's what this is all about. With the climate situation as it is right now, plus many other factors, it's never been more important for us to continue to improve the sustainability of the way that we're moving goods and people. At the same time, we need to improve safety for drivers and pedestrians, and we need to get these solutions in the hands of the people who need them need them most. So that's what I cover. Primarily interviews, I'm talking to the people who are developing and implementing, covering these technology solutions. Also, my day job, this podcast is brought to you by FEV. FEV is your complete vehicle engineering partner for sustainable energy and mobility solutions. We're the engineering technology partner behind a lot of what you see on the road and elsewhere. Shoot me a note if you want to learn more. Check out FEV.com. Check us out on LinkedIn. Hey, everyone. A quick, exciting announcement before we dive into the episode. Mark your calendars. November 11th. November 11th, 2021. We're launching the Future Mobility Live Series. As the name implies... This will be a live, first-of-its-kind, live future mobility event in which we will be talking to two individuals. So the first one's focused on investing in sustainable mobility, talking to two expert, experienced individuals in the investing community, talking about their views on mobility trends, what they're looking for in a founder, what it takes, it takes to succeed, what they've learned along their way. The great part about this being live, you have the opportunity to yeah catch this in real time. You'll also be able to ask Q&A or questions and get real answers to from the guests and myself if you're so inclined and you also have networking opportunities in real time over zoom we'll have breakout sessions so you can meet other people who are working along the same journey whether they're guests the panel myself will all be part of these networking groups so this i'm really excited about this event i think it's going to it's going to bring together people who are working in the same direction working to make safe sustainable equitable mobility of reality really excited you're not going to want to miss it so there's a link in the show notes for you to sign up it's through linkedin where i'm hosting this so if you go on linkedin search future mobility live you'll find it there um it's on my website it's on my linkedin page shoot me an email at bartnick.fev.com there's lots of way to find it you definitely aren't going to want to miss this now to this week's show today's guest is sterling anderson and this this is an exciting one so sterling versus his background so he's co-founder and chief product officer at aurora which is a company delivering the benefits of self-driving technology safely quickly and broadly so sterling's background before before aurora which started in early 2017 late 2016 he developed the mit intelligent Copilot, which is a shared autonomy platform that paved the way for broad advances in cooperative control of human machine systems And he joined Tesla in 2014, where he led the design, development, and launch of the Tesla Model X, as well as, after that, he led the team that delivered Tesla Autopilot. If you've heard, if you've, yeah, if if you're in the automated autonomous space, you you definitely are are familiar with that and and Sterling's work. Really, really cool discussion here. And I think there's, there's a lot that stands out. One, Sterling is very clearly a technical expert in this space who also has a great grasp on the business and the ecosystem that that this comes to and he was able to talk to uh how aurora's their long-term plan i I think one of one of the most exciting things for me is he's there's a lot of hype there's a lot of uh, boasting and claims that are tough to validate in this space of assisted automated driving You, you won't hear that at any of that in this episode this is a at least from my perspective very clear, rational, someone with self-awareness and also, I guess, awareness of his company and the reality of the situation. And it's it's someone in Sterling and Aurora, they're, they're very clearly playing a long-term game. They're not 
and I, I mentioned in this interview, you can also you can go back and you can you can listen to some of his speeches when he when he started Aurora. He's had talks at MIT and, and elsewhere, where they've been in for the long haul since the beginning. They haven't been in a hurry to get vehicles up and running and make it seem like they're farther along than they are. That their, their stance has been, hey, this is a challenging problem. It's a meaningful problem. We're the right team to solve this. We're going to go about it in the way that we think is the best for the long term. And they have, you know, long term partners, kind of the the who's who's of. They're backed by Amazon and Sequoia, and they have partnerships with FedEx, Toyota, Volvo, Uber, and Petcar, plus plus others, which I think states to or speaks to what they're doing. So, really fun discussion. Strong was a great guy to t- talk to. Um, shoot me a note; I'd love to hear what you think about here. I think this was uh, yeah one of the most eye eye open conversations I had, and I, I really hope you enjoy. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sterling Anderson. Today, I'm joined by Sterling Anderson. Sterling, thanks for coming on. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brennan. Yeah. I think you have a re- really interesting background. And then also, I think Aurora is an exciting company. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, uh, this conversation. With, with that being said, could you, uh, could you start by introducing us? Kind of what, yeah, what, what have you been working on? What's Aurora doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, one of the co founders and the chief product officer here at Aurora. Uh, we are, We've been around since early 2017. Uh, we were developing a self-driving system known as the Aurora Driver uh, and a set of product suites, uh, one for the logistics market for trucking and the other for uh, the ride-hailing market. Uh, we call our logistics product Horizon and our uh, ride-hailing product Connect. We're working in partnership with a number of different automakers uh, and networks. So the, the largest carrier in the United States, uh, FedEx, is a partner with Aurora, the number one ride hailing uh, platform in North America in Uber, is also a partner investor in Aurora. Um, on the OEM side, Toyota, largest automaker in the world, is partnered with Aurora. Two of the top three uh, truck manufacturers in North America, Packard and Volvo Trucks, are also partnered with us. So uh, between these partnerships, our role is that of the creation of the driver and a set of services that enable it to operate within these uh, networks. Uh, and then we partner with these uh, with OEMs on the production of vehicles that are uniquely built uh, for that driver, and uh, with networks on the introduction plan uh, to to start to provide those uh, kind of self driving vehicles into their respective services. And so the you mentioned the partners, and it's a uh, yeah cr- crazy list of kind of the, the big players. Um, why, why did you choose the partnership? model as opposed to trying to offer your own service or trying to, I don't become an OEM, whatever, what why yeah. model? Yeah. For a variety of reasons, becoming an OEM is an extraordinarily capital intensive endeavor. Uh, it's one that despite a couple of, uh, exceptions in the past couple of decades is, has been very, very difficult to break into and existing OEMs are very good at what they do. They've got tremendous footprints. They're phenomenal at the production of these vehicles that, uh, they've refined over a century in many cases uh, and have the kind of trust of end users, whether those end users are logistics companies who are buying trucks from them uh, or whether they're, they're passengers who are you know, comfortable riding in a Toyota vehicle, for instance. Uh, and so between them, the kind of investments they've made into building exceptional products uh, simply enables a much more rapid uh, delivery if we work together in the production of vehicles that they can customize specifically the requirements of our driver uh, and we can integrate our driver into those. On the networks front, uh, the, the question here is one of 
Do you deploy on a, kind of your own service independently of anyone else, uh, become, for instance, a logistics provider uh, or become a right hailing network, or do you feather it into existing networks? And the value of feathering it in, so take for, for a moment the right hailing as an example. Uh, when you deploy, self-driving systems won't be able to immediately offer all rides in all conditions. Uh, there are a variety of roadways that for, for the time being, they might not be able to drive. There are environmental conditions they might not be able to handle. And so the opportunity of feathering in really allows the main maintenance of very high utilization of the assets in these self-driving vehicles um, while serving the needs of users at the kind of SLAs that they expect or the kind of service levels that they require, right? So if you as a user, for instance, go to you know Uber or Lyft uh, and request a ride, we can manage on the back end the selection of what vehicle picks you up. And if your origin destination pair and the route that's required and the time of day and the kind of environmental conditions allow it, a self-driving uh, Aurora-powered Toyota vehicle uh, will be there to pick you up and you know it'll be a great experience. If we cannot, if we were providing our own service, you'd be kind of out of luck and it would be pretty quick. You'd, you'd learn to distrust that service and just start, you know, fall back to, to your right hailing network of choice. Um, but given the fact that we're feathering in, if we're unable to, to provide kind of a particular ride, Uber simply dispatches a human driver uh, who, who does that for you. So you as a user, uh, your experience with this uh, is a much more positive one than it would otherwise be uh, if, if it were through a network of our own making. So from Uber's perspective, what, what makes this feathering in attractive? So if they have, you know, a, a fleet of, of some, some percentage of automated vehicles that they can incorporate into their fleet, but they can't, they can't count on those vehicles to be, because as you said, the technology is just not there for um, these vehicles to be available for every ride all the time. What, what's, the, what's the business case for them? Is it kind of working towards this end goal of being able to no, it's, it's fully it's, fleet, or is it valuable now? Certainly the end goal is valuable, but it's valuable now as well. So driver acquisition is one of the bigger costs for ride-hailing networks, uh, securing access to those who will, who will operate these vehicles. And so if they have access to a you know, near infinitely scalable driver in the long term, uh, and certainly even in the near term, uh, simply a self-driving system and vehicles that provide this magical experience where you know, riders get into it and the temperature is perfect. And as per their preferences, the the uh, you know, infotainment system is playing their music. It doesn't feel like someone else's living room they just stepped into and they're anxious about. It feels like a custom kind of tailored experience for them. That's an awesome experience for the user. Um, that's, a, that's a great uh, opportunity for Uber. And it fills a supply gap that they have today in, in enough drivers to fulfill the demand. Yeah, I, I guess that, that makes sense. And I'll, I want to, so I know we're just talking about the one application here. And I, I think it's one of the things on, on self-driving vehicles that are, whatever term you want to use, self-driving vehicles, automated autonomous vehicles, I know there's a ton of nuance there and we need to be careful. But uh, one of the things that I think is missed in the public perception is, I don't know, we asked the question, what's what's the status of autonomous vehicles? And that itself is kind of a, I don't know, it doesn't mean anything because I think the what we're talking about right now, ride hailing is a very different market than private use automated vehicles, which is a very different market than middle mile and uh, kind of last mile logistics, which is very different than long haul trucks. And I know you guys are playing in all those markets. So I, we'll, we'll uh, or at least most, if not all of those markets, yeah. so we'll, we'll touch yeah. on all of those, but j just focusing on this, uh, this ride hailing right now. So what, what are the types of conditions that if, if there is the, the fleet manager Uber, who is uh, trying to determine whether a ride can be given by your, your current state of the technology, whether 
an Aurora um, driver vehicle can come mm-hmm. and pick someone up? What, what are the types of conditions or boundary conditions that would allow you to pick something? What, what are the things that kind of are the, the non-starters for now? Yeah, well, this is, this is where the value of our partnership with Uber really comes into play today. And that is Aurora has unique access to Uber's data uh, uh, that allows us to understand the trips that get unlocked uh, with each capability that we develop. So we can say, look, uh, profiling across markets of interest, what kind of volume uh, exists in these markets? What kind of gross bookings are we talking about? What kinds of driving capabilities were required for each of the trips as they happened for existing users? Uh, and what sequence of rollout for those features, if we were to bring online, you know, operation on, you know, uh, streets of widely varying elevation or high kind of vertical curvature, right? If we were to bring online operation at higher speeds, right? This is one of the key insights that Aurora has uniquely given our access to that data is the fact that when we look at these trips across a variety of large markets, we actually find that over half of them in many of these markets are exceeding speeds of 50 miles an hour. And so Aurora uh, innately knows then as a result of that, look, if we want to be able to service those trips, and particularly these are higher grossing trips like airport type trips, if we want to be able to service those, we need a hardware suite, a software suite, and a set of capabilities that have been validated for operation at those kinds of speeds. Uh, And the benefit of our dual uh, approach to the development of a common driver, common set of hardware, common set of software that operate trucks, the same as that operate cars, is that trucks are already and innately operating on high-speed roads. In fact, they're they're operating with an even more stringent set of requirements given higher latencies and longer braking distances. So when we're able to port that driver, that common driver from a truck into a car, when we're able to use Uber's data to surgically identify which trips are the the best in in terms of kind of the sequenced rollout, uh, we can pick off, you know, when when Uber sends us a request for, you know, a rider who wants to go to a hotel to a, you know, from from an airport to a hotel district, from a hotel district to a convention center, many of these trips, we can selectively provide those services uh, based on both our understanding of what it takes to operate at those in those kinds of conditions, uh, but also on our awareness of kind of what that network and that trip demand looks like. And we can pre-position our vehicles to do that. So we can gain much higher levels of utilization when our kind of fleet rebalancing can shift throughout the day to centers of demand where this, where, where people tend to be moving. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so if I, can kind of connect connect some dots. So it seems like by you guys playing in all these fields and getting exposed to the the conditions and use cases and, and the different uh, different applications, you're not you're not going to be stuck in a position where you're you get to an end and you're not adequately future proofed, right? So if you're if you're applying a, a self or a, yes, a self driving fleet for a urban application, you're maxed mm-hmm. out at 35 miles an hour That's or something. Right. Uh-huh. It's not that you're it's not that the hardware is limited there. It's just yeah. yeah, right now the, the software package is there, but the you you're in parallel developing kind of the the driver or the um you're also accounting for the fact that eventually these things are going to be going 70, 80 miles an hour. That's right. In fact, in fact, we're starting there, right? So uh, and this is a this is an important point that you're keying on here, and that is as you define the requirements for a self-driving system, the envelope of its capabilities 
uh, on the hardware front is really established by kind of the set of environments and the set of operating speeds at which you intend to operate, right? What's the perspective? What's the field of view? What's the, what, the, what are the ranges on which you expect to be able to detect uh, objects at various kind of azimuth angles around the vehicle? Uh, and as you compile those requirements, if you compile them specifically for low-speed urban driving, you'll end up with, you know, imagine in your mind's eye a spider chart, you're going you're to end up with a much smaller area. You're going to have lower ranges, uh, and frankly, it's a little easier on the hardware front to be able to develop for that. Software tends to be a little more complex. If you do just for trucking, your spider chart on hardware is going to be a little further, but you're not going to care quite as much about some of the near-field stuff that you might care about in dense urban centers where you're worried about, you know, you know, people of all shapes and sizes and backpacks and everything else being kind of left around the vehicle. For Aurora, the benefit of starting with the expectation that we would service all these markets is we started with fundamental and in foundational investments in the hardware and software that were scoped to handle both. And what I mean by that was foundational investments that we made in the purchase of a company called Blackmore. Uh, for 15 years, the pioneer in frequency modulated continuous wave LIDAR that allows us to see far, much further uh, than conventional uh, time of flight LIDAR can, can see, allows us to see instantaneous Doppler. Um, we, we invested heavily in a virtual development suite that allows us to much more efficiently explore the combinatorial complexity of the world uh, in a way that allows us much more rapid validation of the system. And then finally, we deployed our vehicles in urban environments. And between these things, I, I, think, I think some, you know, one misconception is some may look at this and say, well, wait a second, you haven't been driving trucks on highways for quite as long, so doesn't that mean you're behind? Well, the question becomes, what do you think trucks on highways run into when they have to deal with uh, uh, urban, uh, urban settings, when they have to get to a store, when they have to get even into a warehouse or a depot, when they have to back up to the gate, they're going to encounter the same kinds of actors, the same kind of objects. And if you've already developed a system whose architecture is designed to accommodate and account for all of these intricate complexities of the real world because your cars drive in San Francisco and Pittsburgh and Palo Alto and Texas, um, and your cars have been driving on highways and your trucks have been driving on highways for years, that kind of foundational early investment leads to a hardware and a software architecture that will scale far better across application domains than any hardware or software architecture designed for a specific domain could have done. So what's your perspective? And until you mentioned kind of the, the long haul application, what's your perspective on using something like platooning as kind of a, a stepping stone of, of tracking mileage? If I, and I, I don't know the answer, but if I yeah. can kind of read between the line here, that's not something that you guys are really focusing on logging a bunch of miles on, on the road in those platooning settings. Um, if that's the case, kind of what, what goes yeah. into that thought process? Yeah. So uh, I'll take by your reference to logging a lot of miles uh, an implication that you're asking whether platooning is a valuable mechanism for operating commercially while collecting data that can be used for validation of a self-driving system. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and what I'll say to that part of the question is when you're platooning, you're going to, you know, except for the lead vehicle, you know, the, the, the objective of platooning is to simplify the environment, to simplify the perception problem, to effectively draft, you know, behind another vehicle who's, make, who's making decisions. And oftentimes in platooning, uh, depending on kind of the, in, in many variations that have been proposed through the years, uh, it's certainly not a new 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 idea, but it's one that's kind of fizzled in in, in many markets. Uh, but the original idea was, well, could you have a human driver in the front truck so they can be taking care of kind of the <clears throat> the complexity of the world as it relates to perception and, and forecasting and motion planning, and let the others just draft behind it. 
the turn it turns out the learning value there as related to self-driving uh, uh, capabilities, specifically perception, forecasting, and motion planning is very limited, right? If, if all you're doing is, is attempting to draft safely behind a truck in front of you, you're not putting a lot of investment into perception. You're not frankly even seeing a lot of objects on the road because you're seeing the back of the truck in front of you. Um, so I think from that in that regard, that we perceive as a, a lower value way to collect data. But what we have done is innovated on a number of different fronts to better facilitate rapid and efficient both aggregation of data, permutation of that data, and development against that data. And yeah, what I mean by this, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to jump into it or, or follow your question. No, yeah, let, let's, let's keep. Let's, I think that's a really interesting area where I think you guys have yeah. talked about it a bit, and I'd be interesting to get your perspective. Yeah. On how, how are you doing that, and what's what's unique about the way you guys are approaching that? Yeah. Um, so historically, the self-driving and driver assistance communities. Uh, have had no better option but to deploy fleets on road and in a brute force way collect as much mileage as they can. And what that's led to is highly inefficient development processes that frankly I've been guilty of in, in past lives when I was at MIT, when I was at Tesla, when I was at other places, where effectively the best thing we knew how to do is equip a vehicle with our hardware, uh, develop a you know an update to our software, deploy it to that vehicle, drive, drive it in the real world with a safety driver with the autonomy system engaged, have the safety driver disengage it if something went wrong and then bring that data back and see how we could kind of uh, evolve things to, to, to account for a situation like that in the future. The problem with that is it's a, you know, two steps forward, one step back, really slow iterative approach to development. And what I mean by that is if you address, you know, a particular situation that a particular truck or car experienced in their world, you have no guarantees that you haven't just introduced regressions across all of the other scenarios that you might have encountered. And very, very frequently, you know, this ends up a one step forward, two steps back, because those regressions can be so egregious as to be detrimental to your progress altogether. And even when, uh, you know, his vestigial kind of approaches tried to overcome this challenge by deploying much larger fleets, right? Hundreds of trucks, hundreds of cars, um, in the hopes that, well, now maybe our software engineers can deploy a change. We can encounter, you know, in a couple of hours, you know, more things, and then we can make changes based on what we see. Well, the problem is, again, you are only seeing what 100 vehicles have seen in the course of, say, 10 hours, which is a laughably small subset of what the real world provides. And beyond that, you're also unable to use those logs uh, reliably in future work if they were generated by a system that operated in a particular way that you don't intend to operate in the future. And so what we did at Aurora is, you know, part of our, uh, what we refer to as our 2.0 approach to development is we, when we came together, we had the benefit of years of experience and hindsight, understanding these challenges, as well as advances that have been made in machine learning techniques, as well as uh, virtual development uh, uh, opportunities, where we instead said, look, instead of making this cycle of development, one that effectively connects, uh, you know, brute force on-road testing with software development, uh, uh, and, and changes, let's instead remove the brute force testing, instead turn our on-road operations into the exploration of edge and corner cases with expert human drivers, such that that data that we collect in the real world is effectively forever. It wasn't tainted by the fact that a particular self-driving system was operating. When so we collect running that this data, with a, a human driver, driver manually. That's exactly right. Logging with, the data. Exactly. And that's with the hardware and software systems engaged logging 
but the maneuvers the behaviors and importantly, the behavior of other actors re responding to what our vehicle was doing is representative of what we'd want our system to do in the, in, in, in the future. And what that allows us to do is collect a baseline set of a, a large set of uh, on-road experiences, which we then developed uh, substantial uh, investments internally into an end-to-end -end virtual development engine that allows us faithful representation of not just camera data, but camera, LIDAR, radar, all of our perception suite, as well as near bitwise replication of how our software executes on our vehicles. And so now when a software, do, and, 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 and then turn those real world experiences that forms this kind of corpus of data, permute it in myriad ways. Say, you know, we've been, you know, operating for, you know, four and a half million miles on public roads. That's, that's nothing compared to what we could have encountered. So let's take every one of those scenarios and let's permute it. Let's say there were five pedestrians instead of one. Let's say one was running. Let's say a vehicle, you know, did something that they, that, that we haven't seen yet. Now we've got this massive corpus of data um, against which we can test virtually. So now at Aurora, in contrast, instead of a software engineer making a change to the code, kicking off a, de a dev test for a fleet of hundreds of vehicles and hoping and crossing their fingers they don't introduce major regressions, they instead make a change to the code, kick that change up to our virtual development suite, which spools up the on-road equivalent of over 50,000 trucks in a moment. Uh, and in a massively parallel way, collects data uh, from, uh, or, uh, provides the um, kind of results of all of those tests, inclusive of which passed, which failed, where did aggression, regressions get introduced, and allows for just very rapid turnaround and ultimately validation on a scale that you couldn't possibly expect to do unless you had hundreds of thousands of vehicles in the real world. I'm sure we're going to get to a, a spot where you're going to yeah, not, not want to talk um, in, in too much detail, but a couple couple questions here. So one, yeah. the, the developing this virtual de development um, suite of how you guys are approaching this, how, how is this something internally developed? Are you working with with partners on this development fleet? And, and how, how are you going about gaining a level of confidence that if you do have something in your developing permutations where you have a, a pedestrian, but hey, let's throw some friends with them, let's make yeah. them running. like. Mm -hmm. How, how are you confident that that's representative of, of real world information when it's kind of a, a computer generated permutation? Yeah, so it's a couple of steps. So first uh, to your to your first question in, in terms of uh, where this comes from, uh, we looked at a number of different possible sources for elements of this and ultimately uh, came down to the determination that the most accurate system we could develop would be done internally. Uh, and so we created our own simulation uh, engine uh, as opposed to using kind of gaming engines, which which can be common in in, in some places, in some kind of corners of the industry, um, because by doing so, we could far more uniquely tailor not just the fidelity of, for instance, the perception simulation, uh, but also the fidelity of the execution that happens on the on the car or on the road. <clears throat> um, uh, in, in terms of you know ensuring that the sensors are synchronized in the same way, their input is ingested at the same time, which sound nuanced, but can make a fairly sizable difference in terms of how accurate that's, that, that, that simulation is to what it would have happened in the real world. To your question about, okay, how do you gain confidence that your simulation is a faithful representation of what happens in the real world? The, the short answer is calibration. Uh, you calibrate it heavily against real world logs. So what we can do is we can take a log from the real world, convert it into a simulation, 
rerun that log based on the empirical data derived from the real world with the autonomy system uh, uh, effectively you know, operating the vehicle. Um, and we can run the simulation derived from that log uh, in the same way. And then we can juxtapose the behavior of the self-driving system uh, and look at varying, varying elements, uh, varying levels of, of complexity as to how did that execute and where did it vary? Where did it differ? And that's, I mean, it's, it's classical calibration of, you know, tools like this, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll use the analogy to, you know, years ago in the mechanical engineering world, uh, we were doing uh, years ago, I, I shouldn't say we, this was, this was a little bit before my time, but, 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 you know, this was really a guess and check approach to hardware engineering once upon a time, right? Which was effectively, you have a guy in a machine shop or a girl in a machine shop, um, you send that person, uh, you know, a, a latest design, they build it, and then you just test it and cause it to fail and then go and beef it up in different places where it failed. This was superseded by computer aided design tools that now allow for a far more rapid, far more efficient and far more optimized approach to development of hardware. We've done the same thing for software, where instead of this brute force empirical guess and check and see where it fails and then beef it up there, uh, we have a far more refined set of validation tools and verification tools in a virtual environment that allows us to do uh, you know, something much more like what CAD enabled for hardware. Yeah, and if someone's not in the industry and is listening, it might sound obvious, right? Because you're, you're working on advanced, you know, you have some machine learning elements, you're working on this advanced driver assistant self-driving application. Obviously, you're going to have these these cool software packages, but I guess I, I can tell you kind of from, from first-hand experience, and I'm sure you can speak to this more, that it's, it's incredible how much brute force stuff is still done where it's, yeah, let's go log 10 million miles or, or right. whatever it is. and. Right. Yeah, a mile in Iowa is very different than a mile through the mountains someplace or in downtown Denver, these types of applications. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's cool to hear how you guys are approaching it. Yeah, and on that point, just, just one quick comment about that. Uh, the heterogeneity of the roadway kind of operating environment is a really important consideration when considering a rollout and reaching scale, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're deploying a self-driving system and you deploy in a highly heterogeneous environment, say, you know, pick a city center, basically anywhere, um, it's gonna be really hard for you to scale technologically uh, because every, you know, you go a few blocks and things look different, you know, behavior patterns, traffic patterns are different. This was a big part of the, the value that we saw in starting in trucking is because on, on trucking lanes, uh, these are far more homogenous, right? A, a given mile of highway in Texas looks an awful lot like a given mile of highway in basically any state. Mm -hmm. And by turning a, the, 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 the scaling problem from a technological one into an operational one, we can deploy at much larger scales. We can bring down the cost of the hardware as just economies of scale kick in uh, and then uh, and gain experience that can be leveraged in a significant way with a common driver in urban settings for, for ride hailing. Gotcha. Yeah. That, that's interesting. And I, I'm hoping we have time to circle back. You had touched on it, that the first light LIDAR, I think that that's interesting, but I also, I, I want to make sure to be able to talk about kind of commercialization and the way that you're thinking about the business. So let's, yeah. let's table that. And if there's time at the end, we, we can circle back. Uh, so, so yeah, with, with that being said, I guess the first, first question on kind of the business model. So I think there's a case to be made that, you know, we, we talk about how, how great it is future proofing and thinking about all of this, this problem as a, a collection kind of from the beginning and, and how that's setting you up for success in the future, which I, I think is all, all great. But I, I think, yeah, from my, my first opinion or my first perspective would be kind of 
aren't you over-engineering or potentially slowing down your time to the market by not just going like, I mean, you, you maybe you could already have a, a fleet in a different area or you could be further along in certain applications if you had focused earlier. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that question and, and yeah. trying to balance that? Yeah. As with all of these early investments, uh, I think that it is unquestionable that we could be uh, excitedly telling the markets today that we were doing more at higher levels of performance in a very small slice of the application domain. Uh, and I'm sure that would excite a lot of people who didn't appreciate just how hard it'd be for us to get out of that local maxima into kind of something more significant. That is perhaps one of you, you mentioned earlier kind of misconceptions of the industry. That's one of the biggest ones, frankly. It's, it's part of why proliferation of autonomous vehicle development companies was so pervasive for the last several years is because it is relatively easy, comparatively easy for anyone to start a program like this, hyper-focus on, you know, one vehicle, take, take one platform, you know, deeply integrate a system with it, find a very narrow niche of the market and say, we're going to go and do that niche. Oh, and by the way, we don't need to invest in foundational early investments and things like virtual development, like Aurora has done or first light, like Aurora has done, because, you know, those are just slow us down. It's a lot of work and we can go out to the markets. And we can show them what looks like an asymptotic climb in our uh, kind of rate of interventions uh, and effectively, you know, excite the market. But look, we seem to be approaching an asymptote. The problem is, particularly if you do that without the foresight of realizing just how challenging the validation program is, very frequently those asymptotes that are being approached, A, get approached on much longer time horizons than most appreciate, but B, are much lower than most uh, would really like. Uh, and so if you want to be able to scale to a, a, a uh, uh, have the impact that Aurora was created to have, you simply can't start with a system that you would have to tear up, throw out, and restart, you know, once you've developed, you deployed on your first trucking lane. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and it's a, and it's a good question, right? Like the, I mean, minimally viable products and, you know, books have been written about minimally viable products and the value of getting to market quickly was something that's just enough and is not over-engineered. And to be clear, our focus has not been on the over-engineering, but on the creation of foundational investments that we knew would be required to get us over the hump. And it's hard for me to tell you today that, look, if we hadn't done this, um, you know, we, we, we will reach a point where we just wouldn't survive any longer. Um, I think, um, you know, there have been cautionary tales in the market uh, for companies that have done these things and are no longer uh, because they realize ultimately they simply couldn't scale out of the the kind of local optimum they were in. Yeah, and then maybe another sloppy two two part question for you for you. But so uh, you, you certainly yeah had some great experience and your, your co founders as well when you started Aurora back in what was these, I think it's the late twenty sixteen or early twenty seventeen somewhere around mm-hmm. there. Um, and yeah, with, with Tesla and the the autopilot and MIT and. Uh, you know, in, in prep for this discussion, watching some t- talks that you gave back then, um, thinking of, so, so right now, s- since then, we've gone through this hype cycle or part of the hype cycle for autonomous drive or automated autonomous driving, in which everyone thought for a couple years there that it was a really easy problem. And it's just right around the corner, we're all going to have self-driving cars. And now I think we're kind of in another well, local minima, minima or so of kind of the, the perception. But I guess the, the interesting thing was, 
even back then you kind of had it, my, my perception from these just the, the small samples of talks is you kind of had a, a long-term vision of yeah this is a tough problem we're solving we're not going to throw stuff on the road as fast as possible and try to appear like you're saying that we're, we're further along than we were um so I, I guess the question is one how startups you need money you need investors how are you able to get a long-term vision like that with and get the patience and the support on the back end with the, the people who are commercially supporting Aurora and then has your has anything sp significantly changed in your perception since then or is it kind of played out as you expected and you guys are just trucking yeah. along and setting yourself up for long-term success yeah yeah it's a good question uh, so it's played out largely as as we'd hoped um I'll, I'll, I'll be clear here that I've been very appreciative of the investors and the partners that we've had through the years, right? Um, these are folks who understand the enormity of this problem. They understand the substantial value that will be created when we solve it. Um, and they have a lot to lose, right? Like I mentioned to you, our partner list, this is kind of the who's who of logistics, of ride hailing networks, of OEMs. Recognize that each of these folks is, uh, you know, is and ought to be very, very thoughtful about who they partner with on this stuff, right? They've got century, they've got century old businesses uh, in many cases that are on the line, right? Companies like Volvo, their brand, their reputation rides on the safety of their products. Companies like Packard occupy the premium segment and have tremendous trust throughout the world. Companies like FedEx uh, are very thoughtful in their evaluation of, of, of these teams and these systems. Uh, and Uber, you know, uh, uh, as well. And so I think what you can probably take from that is a recognition from many of these companies that this is not an easy problem. It's not a problem that a, that a small group of, you know, folks that, you know, drop out of school and go start a company and quickly spool something up and, uh, you know, uh, are super excited about how early they were at doing it or how kind of lean they are in, in, in deploying. These companies realize that this problem is so important to the future of their business that they would much rather partner with a company who has the experience, who has the partnerships, who has the people uh, to be able to deploy it safely and at scale. And we're building a company not for the next five years, um, but for the next hundred. Uh, and we recognize that there is a there's a real value to going slow to go fast. And we started to see that, right? In fact, in, in, in recent months, um, you know, for years we were talking about, hey, it, it, you know, the things that you've seen or you just referenced, right? I've, I've been saying for years, this is something you have to invest in early on. You have to go slow early. And this is the importance of that. Uh, I think this starts to come into much higher relief when you realize that today, given early investments in the way that we architected the system uh, in terms of the, the system engineering that went into the driver and the platform, in terms of the safety engineering of the safety case, Today, we bring up a new truck platform in 12 weeks, right? This is something that is not done if, <clears throat> if you haven't invested that way. Today, we turn a new uh, uh, route from Dallas to Houston for a logistics partner that we haven't been uh, testing on extensively. And in on our fourth poll with that partner are driving down and back without disengagements. Um, these are the kinds of investments, right? These are, these are the kinds of things that, you know, companies who just focus on that one thing will focus on for years. And then they'll come out with a press release and say, hey, we drove down and back to, you know, Dallas to Houston. There were no disengagements. Isn't this awesome? Um, it is awesome. 
The problem is, does it scale? And is that uh, are the are, is the platform and the infrastructure there to support it actually going to get you from hundreds of miles uh, without a challenge to millions, right? And if you want to achieve a safety uh, that we believe is required to deploy uh, uh, ethically, you have to your your system has to reach a level of reliability that no one has proven uh, via the safety case. And so we've been very open about that safety case. We've been the only company to release our safety framework. Uh, and in so doing, we expect to bring the public and our partners along on the journey to establish the fact that, look, you, are, you will never know from an empirical observation that we are safe enough. You will know through a detailed structured safety case that establishes all of the claims that breaks down the functional safety, safety intended function and cultural and organizational safety, how we're approaching this. And you'll see the evidence, empirical, statistical, you know, uh, uh, virtual and otherwise, that these claims have been satisfied and the system is safe. And ho hopefully I'm not, not uh, misquoting you, but it, my understanding what you, what you said in the past is essentially the, the bar that you have is deploying the system. You need you to kind of have the burden of proof that you need to know that your system is safer than a human driver in that application, which may not sound like a, a crazy bar, but is, is a very, uh, very challenging bar to clear. So, so is, that, is that still kind of the gold standard for you guys before you're putting something on the road? We're, we won't deploy uh, anything that imposes an unre unreasonable risk to road safety, right? And the, and the barometer that I have is something that my wife told me years ago uh, when she was taking one of my daughters to school and, and uh, another company's self-driving vehicle, uh, the driver had to take over and slam on the brakes as they crossed the crosswalk in front of them. Um, you know, that night, my wife pulled me aside and said, don't you ever make anyone else's spouse or children the unwitting participants in the empirical validation of something you haven't developed sufficiently uh, uh, before you deploy it. And so for us, before we ever drove our first unprotected left in the real world, we tested it over two and a quarter million times in virtual testing. And so when we deployed it the first time, we had a high degree of confidence, this will work, and it did. Um, much like with you know the, the, the logistics loads that we just pulled between Dallas and Houston, Right? It doesn't come as a particular surprise um, that we can move between Dallas and Houston at these kinds of performance levels, because we've, you know, we've, we've got a massive trove of experience and virtual development that back up and support the fact that the system should be able to behave this way. And so transitioning maybe in more depth to the, uh, the, the business um, and, and how, how do you see things progressing for Aurora? So you're playing in these different spaces. You, you mentioned tr trucking here. We've talked about some of the other application segments, but how, how do you see this rolling out over the next few years um, and these different mm -hmm. markets maturing? Yeah, it's a good question. We're starting with truck, uh, but we're developing a common Aurora driver and common set of uh, platform requirements. So what we did early on, as I kind of alluded to this, is we developed uh, the system architecture in such a way that we could segment both that uh, architectural requirements as well as safety burden between what the platform is responsible for and what the driver is responsible for. That allowed substantial focus, centralization of what happens on the driver. So everything from perception, motion planning, uh, forecasting, controls uh, happen kind of in the core of the driver. Work that happens on the platform is something that we've got a very rigorously codified set of requirements that we work with each of these OEM partners to prepare. Uh, and in fact, we just recently had a number of exciting uh, uh, announcements on progress there, whether it's the Sienna uh, that Toyota has produced to satisfy these requirements uh, that we've prepared for them or development of, of uh, and selection of the uh, prototype for what we'll launch with Volvo and with Packard. 
Um, and so we're starting in trucking. Uh, that segmented, uh, that common driver allows for increased uh, kind of experience that accrues to the benefit of all products. And if you think about the driving environment, right, trucks and cars operate on the same roads. They see the same kinds of actors. They encounter the same pedestrians, the same cars, the same bikes. Uh, and so their perception systems uh, are substantially common. Now, range, perception range with a multimodal system is a little, little longer for a truck, higher latencies on braking, longer braking distances. And here it becomes only more important that you have that kind of you know, long range perception that we talked about with first light in our camera system, uh, in our radars. Um, but by deploying on trucks with these partners, we'll, we'll deploy what I'd mentioned as Horizon. Uh, carriers and private fleets will uh, purchase a vehicle from the manufacturer, uh, right? So Peterbilt, Kenworth truck equipped uh, uh, you know, with the Aurora driver, for instance. Um, and then they'll subscribe to Aurora Horizon from us. We provision the driver and the backend, uh, which includes the hardware, the software, and the data services to, to, to allow it to work and allow it to progress through time. So software updates, security patches, all of that support. We also provide a, a suite of tools that we refer to as Aurora Beacon. Uh, Aurora Beacon is a suite of health monitoring, fleet dispatch routing, um, and other tools uh, that enable these carriers to maximize the utilization and uptime of their fleet. And then finally, Shield, uh, which is a suite of tools for roadside assistance, uh, for maintenance, certification, and support. So ultimately, Aurora's business in trucking is a very asset light one. Uh, we, we, much like you know, General Electric or Rolls-Royce or Pratt & Whitney, uh, we don't get involved in the uh, kind of purchase of the hardware that goes directly from the OEM to the carrier. Uh, we do, however, provide a subscription service and support for them to use that driver in their business. Why did you decide that uh, Beacon and Shield were, were necessary? Because it, it doesn't seem obvious that that's part of a um, autonomous driver package. Yeah. Well, you could just provide the driver and no additional tools and kind of wish them good luck and Godspeed, right? Um, we, we, we are delivering a premium product that will operate in ways that even their existing fleets cannot, right? Whether it's the removal of hours, hours of service limitations, whether it is increased efficiency, uh, fuel and otherwise, then they could get, they could realize with human driven trucks. Uh, we want to be there for these carriers with a product that allows them to scale beyond what they uh, could do with the, with the, with the current uh, setup. And so, you know, tools like remote health monitoring, these allow for predictive maintenance. Maintenance. They allow for uh, network optimization when they know where every truck is through a common interface and a common set of tools. Um, things like Shield, where whether it's kind of roadside assistance or other other support tools, this allows them to ensure that they're getting you know near 100% utilization of these trucks, which are which are tremendous benefits and opportunities for for these carriers. I know you're seeing on your customer side that there are uh, fleet operators who are excited to be early adopters and kind of embrace the the support, the development of this technology, or is it purely a ROI? Like you, you need to prove, Hey, you're going to make money over this time period. This is going to be an ROI positive investment yeah. for you before yeah. anybody's going to write you a check. Yeah. It, it's hard to not see the opportunity on the ROI front, right? Um, take the total cost of ownership of a truck. Uh, break it down into its component parts, there's no way that you don't realize benefits uh, from all of the value proposition that we just uh, we just briefly ticked through. 
And so for carriers, for private fleets, everyone sees that potential. It's, um, um, you know, I've got a three-year-old, she, she won't turn down an offer of candy. Um, here, it doesn't matter what time of day, it doesn't matter, you know, what that candy looks like. It's candy, it's, it's opportunity. Um, the same is true of the, the industry. They need this heavily. There are 60,000 truck drivers short. We're rising to 160,000 over the next few years. And so the opportunity is clear um, for carriers in terms of their, their respective interest and involvement uh, early in the development. I think that most, um, in fact, nearly all that have approached us uh, recognize the need to co-develop how it interfaces with their network, how they're going to use it. They recognize that long-term it will provide substantial value. Uh, and I think they recognize it will provide a substantial competitive advantage as well. Uh, and so commercially from, from an adoption standpoint, uh, and this is true for ride hailing uh, as it is for, for trucking, uh, I don't ever lose sleep about commercial adoption. Um, I don't lose sleep about regulatory allowance. Regulatorily, most of the United States is in, is in a great place that way. Um, the one place I lose sleep and where my primary focus is, is uh, and, and most of the company is on the technical development uh, of the product. We recognize that's the single biggest hurdle to overcome. Ah, I, I'm sorry. I lost a, uh, I lost a couple minutes there. So as, as soon as you said, I, uh, I don't, don't ever lose sleep on early adopt or on con commercial adoption. I, I lost you. Could you I, yeah. There? Yeah. Commercial adoption. Uh, uh, I expect. Uh, the model is clear and customers, be they carriers or, or transportation networks, are anxious to get access to them. Uh, and and they'll, they'll get involved at the appropriate point. I think those who recognize the value of, the, of, of a product like this um, are anxious to understand how to integrate it with their networks. Um, the other two places, so that's commercially. When I think regulatorily, I think we're in a, a very good spot uh, for most of the United States uh, and beyond. And what I mean by that is in most states, uh, you know, many of the Sunbelt states and, and, and others throughout the United States, uh, among them, we're, they're open for business. Uh, we can do this. If, if we had the technology today, we could do it today. Um, there are a few states uh, throughout the country, California among them, uh, that are working towards that place. And we're involved with them and helping uh, them kind of understand kind of how this works and kind of uh, working with them to inform and facilitate kind of the changes they need to make. Um, it's technologically that I worry most. Um, and, and I find that, you know, I think uh, commercial progress is comparatively very easy, particularly when you're offering candy to children, right? Like uh, an industry that needs it so badly, and I don't mean to be pejorative in any way about that analogy, but an industry that needs this so badly will uh, sign up all day long for, um, you know, uh, uh, fully cancelable reservations uh, of these trucks. Um, what matters is, do you have the foundational technology? Do you have the wherewithal? Do you understand the problem well enough that you'll actually be able to deliver a product for them? Uh, and I think, you know, I, I treat this a little bit as we've laid the groundwork for the product. We've got the partnerships. We've got the carriers uh, lining up, uh, preparing for it. We will prepare kind of the commercial interfaces for them. Um, we absolutely have to deliver on the technology. And so that's what, that's what the core of the team is focused on. And then maybe we don't, don't have time to go too deep here, but then, so looking past trucking and kind of the long haul logistics. So at the other kind of three, three markets that I think of, right, the, the last mile slash middle mile kind of, mm -hmm. uh, 
know, sprinter van type type vehicles, mm -hmm. the Uber ride hail that we're talking about, and then also the uh, pri private use vehicle. So my opinion that the private use vehicle is kind of the, the last that it's going to make sense to have in a, a fully autonomous system and that the commercial one day, commercial ones are, are more attractive in the, in the short term. But how are you thinking about those other markets and how quickly they're going to develop after the trucking market? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, delivery in any fleet setting where we can amortize the cost of the incrementally more expensive vehicle over more miles driven and in targeted use cases will will dominate. Um, and, and so um, deployment in logistics for us will be followed by deployment in ride hailing uh, and deployment in last mile, middle mile uh, as well. So we are our logistics product horizon will evolve from you know, combination trucks pulling 53 foot dry vans and reefers to combination trucks pulling flatbeds to box trucks and, and light commercial vehicles um, uh, in, in, in the delivery of kind of middle and last mile. Um, our red, ride hailing product drafts initially off of the truck product. Um, and I, I referenced earlier how you do that, right? When you're driving highways and you're driving kind of arterials Turns out that's mostly what you drive when you're doing airport trips to hotel districts. You can kind of pick off this kind of trip and then expand from there. Now, if you think about highway as the backbone, high-speed roads as the backbone, we expand incrementally with the ride-hailing product in terms of capabilities, and then truck in turn drafts off of that. So when when we first start driving, you know, airports to to, to uh, you know th these kind of highway dominant ride-hailing trips, we start to expand off highway. By virtue of this common driver, our trucks are immediately and inherently learning what our cars are learning. Uh, in fact, the same code is running on our cars, it's running on our trucks. And when cars pick up a new capability and we validate the ability to operate in you know, particular urban or suburban environment, suddenly our trucks can do the same thing. And that's, that's relevant, right? Trucks operate on these roads. When you're driving warehouse to warehouse or particularly distribution centers to stores, like many of these private, private fleets do, that's a that's a valid uh, a valuable uh, opportunity for trucks to expand into. So so even though the so like in, in an urban area, so I, I could definitely see on a highway how you know operationally a, a passenger car application mm -hmm. and a truck are very similar. Yeah, you have more weight, mm -hmm. low, longer braking time, and, and stuff yeah. like that. But in my mind, a truck moving through a city is very different than a, a passenger car. Just I mean. So suddenly these, these questions of where the different sensors are and how you're merging these together and then also blind spots and yeah. the, the clearances that you need through different areas. Yeah, yeah. It seems so, much more important. Uh, yeah, can, it, it, you're right on both counts. Uh, first, on the perception front, at long ranges, the, ele the elevation of your sensors, which are higher on a truck than they are on a car, at long ranges, that doesn't matter, right? The angular difference is, is so small as to be largely irrelevant. At short ranges, it does because a truck looks down at the roof of cars and a car looks, you know, at the back of cars effectively. <clears throat> so there is uh, work to be done at the edges in additional training for these models, modules. But let's be clear, much of the complexity in self-driving development lies not in the retraining of a perception model, but instead in the complexities of how do you forecast the future action of those other actors? Mm -hmm. How do you plan a path through them that accounts for not only how they're going to interact and how they're going to influence one another's motion, but how your actions are going to influence them and, and, and how you can therefore do so safely. So there's a lot of complexity here 
that is common. Now, you also mentioned, uh, and you didn't use this word, but I will, that kind of kinodynamic uh, characteristic of a passenger vehicle versus a truck, which is to say trucks bend in the middle, they sweep out at different spaces, they turn a corner, take a tight turn in the truck, and now you're having to, in some cases, swerve into the oncoming lane uh, to, to get around that. Our motion planning system is being developed to account for that. So in a parameterized way, if the model of the vehicle accurately accounts for its kinodynamics, the motion planner uh, can be designed to start to distill away a, a more common model for how we how we ought to move, uh, where, uh, you know, for trucks and for cars, there are slight variations that are then applied uh, in the control determination. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. I guess if you understand the world around you, that's the, the biggest problem. And right. then flight there, path planning and following and all that stuff is that's right. Maybe. And, and you're right. There is there is some additional training by virtue, largely of perspective. Uh, not really field of view because our, our trucks and our cars all have the same number of sensors in the same arranged in the same areas. So we see largely the same areas of the world. Um, but you're right that sensors arrayed on the top of the truck, they will have a slightly different perspective at close range. Cool. Well, uh, this has been you know really interesting discussion. I, I have a ton a ton to think about and uh, I, I definitely have uh, opened my eyes to a few things, which, which I really appreciate. Um, Quick left turn, and then we, then we can close here. So I, I ask every, all my uh, all, all my guests questions. What, what's a a favorite book or books of, of of yours that have had a big impact? So if someone doesn't need to be business related, it could be personal, or it could be business, it could be this space. But what, what's something that you've read that has had a big impact on you that you might recommend to, to people listening? Boy, I should have thought about this before. So I'm going to give you one, and then I'll and then I'll think later and realize I should have given you an, uh, a different one. Um. I need to think about that. Um, in fact, I'm going to look at my bookshelf. Um, you know, Jim Collins' Good to Great was a really impactful one. I read that uh, many years ago. Uh, that was, uh, I thought, I thought, uh, great. Uh, I've got a collection of engineering books, but I assume you're not going to want to hear uh, which of those I liked best. Um, <laughs> No, I think good, good to great was really good. Um, it's a, it's a, um, there are some insights that are really good. I think, I think Clay Christensen's uh, Innovator's Dilemma, uh, it teaches a number of really important insights, um, you know, to the earlier point about minimally viable products and kind of the value uh, thereof. Yeah, I think good, good to great is one that is interesting to me and in that like the, uh, from a, from a research perspective, I somewhat struggle because you know the idea of kind of pick the winners and then reverse engineer what happened. Not not the greatest uh, technique from a statistical. Yeah, right. But with that being said, there, there's still outcomes that and and takeaways that I think are very very valuable. And yeah, yeah that's definitely a good a good read. Yeah, characteristics that and and I think I think Clay's book uh, isn't subject to that same problem. I think he he does a good job of effectively, um, you know, just chronicling what tends to happen when you disrupt from, from beneath other players in terms of kind of minimally viable solutions that are, that are developed with the kind of minimal set of features required to get into a market and then, you know, take on more over time. And we're, we're very thoughtful about that. I know, I know that, you know, all this talk about foundational early investments can sound like, uh, boy, these guys are, you know, heavily engineering this thing and maybe they're trying to make it do all things for all people. To be clear, it will do one thing 
for a variety of customers first. That's why we're deploying in the way we are, right? And the minimally viable product that we launch in trucking is not capable and will not be capable of all the rest of the things. And that that is a true MVP. Um, but we've architected it such that we can do more than that over time as we develop. Gotcha. Yeah, it's good clarification there. So, um, and with that being said, open-ended kind of last uh, closing, thought, closing thoughts. Is there anything you... You know, hope, hope we would have touched on that we didn't anything from this conversation or um, that they want to expand on or kind of open ended. If there's just kind of one one point that you're hoping the, uh, the a listener to this takes away from yeah. what working on or this problem overall. Yeah. Um, yeah. So closing thoughts there. This is one of the most impactful things that I and I think many of us can deliver in our lifetimes. Um, I got into it years ago. Uh, when a close family member was struck by a car and broke his neck. Um, this is our ability to save lives, our opportunity to uh, improve massively the efficiency of supply chains, um, the way that people get around, improve access to transportation to people who don't currently have it. There, there are a few things I can imagine that will have a greater impact on the world. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about Aurora uh, uh, and our opportunity to do so. I think we've got the people, the product, and the partners uh, to do it. 1,600 people, you know, over 1,000 patents, over 200, I think, uh, uh, PhDs, or near 200 PhDs uh, in this space, people with years and years of experience. We've been around the block. We've seen different ways of doing this, um, and I'm, I'm excited about our 2.0 approach that focuses on these early investments. We're now starting to kind of reap the rewards of these. I think we've got major partners who see their value. And so I think if, if uh, I don't know what your listener profile looks like, but for any of those who are thinking about what to do next uh, with their life, with their career, um, this, this is absolutely worth considering. And, uh, and Aurora, we'd, we'd be happy to talk with you. Yeah, definitely technical. And I think, so the, the main topics are automated driving and uh, sustainable propulsion systems. And I think both of these are unique in that the Venn diagram of interesting, challenging engineering problems and a ton of meeting. They're, they're both right in the center there of right. uh, really cool things to be working on. So right. yeah, but with that being said, certainly, like I said, really appreciate the time. Exciting to hear what, what you're, uh, what you're working on. Um, and yeah, I'll definitely be rooting for you. Thank you. Yeah. It was nice to meet you, Brandon. Thanks for the questions and yeah, hopefully we'll talk again. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. The Future Mobility Podcast is brought to you by FEV. For more than 40 years, FEV has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry. With a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design, development, integration, and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies, FEV is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions. I'm your host, Brandon Bartnick. If you want to learn more or get in contact to share feedback or questions, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.